in this episode of the Live Damn Well podcast. What I started to realize quickly as I started to see more and more patients was, well, actually, there's a, another whole huge group of people who have a problem and the source of that problem is the digestive tract. Even as recently as the last few years, there's people have just adopted these notions of marketing as science. You know, things like, oh, the best ones in the refrigerator, best probiotics in the refrigerator. It's like, that's marketing. There's zero science that supports the notion that the best ones are in the refrigerator or that more is better. So we've been able to show that the gut-derived toxins are actually what's at the root of the lesions in the Alzheimer brain. So we take a post-mortem Alzheimer brain and we dissect the brain. There's gut-derived endotoxins in the brain tissue. And there's an immune reaction that's happening to that gut-derived toxin being in the brain tissue. We're not in the business of selling books where somebody reads the book and, and the most people get better. It's like, if you're my patient, I gotta get you better. It doesn't matter what I did to the 100,000 people before you. If I failed you, I failed you. Welcome to the Live Damn Well podcast. My goal is pretty simple, to bring you both sides of the story in a cancel culture world where open conversation seems to be nearly impossible especially in the sciences. I hope to bridge the gap between ancestral living and modern medicine, using the best from both worlds to inform how modern humans should live for optimal health and wellness. By interviewing experts in the fields of evolutionary biology, neuroscience, metabolism, exercise physiology, epigenetics, and beyond, I hope to tackle the topic of health from as many angles as possible to make this podcast into an amazing resource for anyone looking to improve their health. Thank you for joining me. All right, Dr. Bain, welcome to the podcast. I'm very excited to have you on today. Uh, today, we're going to dive into the gut microbiome. We kind of touched on that in my uh, episode with Dr. Marvin Singh a little while ago, and I want to keep on uh, exploring this topic, topic especially as it uh, relates to uh, COVID-19 and immune system, and that's been huge uh, this past year and a half. So, uh, Dr. Bain, thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, thank you for having me and to have me follow up after Dr. Singh. I'm, uh, I'm quite honored. I'm a big fan and a good friend of Dr. Singh. So uh, thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, so let's get right into it. Tell me about the microbiome. Why is it important and why did you decide to start studying it? So, you know, I think if, if I go back, my journey's a little bit longer than yours, but, you know, when, when I go back, it was, there was a simplicity that got me involved with the microbiome, and, and really, it, it wasn't even an intelligence of knowing that it was the microbiome, it was more knowing I needed to help people who had digestive problems, I needed, I needed to help people who had gut-related problems, and what I realized when I first started seeing patients is, one, there's a lot of people that have a primary digestive problem. But what I started to realize quickly as I started to see more and more patients was, well, actually there's a, another whole huge group of people who have a problem and the source of that problem is the digestive tract. 
you know, so they don't necessarily point to the digestive tract as the problem or the, the cause of their migraine or, or the cause of their lowered immune resistance or whatever it might be. Right. They just, they come in for their problem. And, um, and, and then when I, as I'm doing my detective work, I'm like, oh my goodness, it's their digestive tract that's off. So it started out as a macro problem for me. It started out with symptoms that were easily associated with the digestive tract. Then you start to see the connection of other conditions. You start to see the connection with autoimmune disease mm -hmm. and, and different conditions like that. So, so it starts to expand on, the, on this gut problem. And then you can't help but get into the microbiology. If you're not addressing the uh, microbiome, the, the microbiology of the system, then you're leaving a big piece of the puzzle out. So then, then the deep dive started because... You know, when I first got started, and even even as recently as the last few years, there's people have just adopted these notions of marketing as science. You know, things like, oh, the best ones in the refrigerator, best probiotics right. in the refrigerator. It's like that's marketing. There's zero science that supports the notion that the best ones are in the refrigerator or that more is better. That's another great one. Uh, well, yours only has 50 billion, mine has 100 billion. You know, the, the ridiculousness of that when there's zero research that supports it. You know, so when I, when I first stepped into uh, this field, the people who were teaching me had a very strong science background. I came from a strong science background. So for me, it was logical. It seemed like I was just, you know, doing what everybody else in this industry does. And then I left that group and went out on my own. And it was like, oh my goodness, everybody else isn't doing it that way. The research is not a huge component of, of what most companies are doing. I would say there's very few companies that legitimately have a research background and actually do research on their finished products. And so, so for, uh, for me, it, it was through my career, it just was a logical uh, growth to get to a point where we were actually doing human clinical trials on the microbiome itself. Yeah, that's something I noticed. Um, I looked into um, to PubMed and I saw you guys had a few, uh, several clinical trials on there. Yeah, and we have a number that are in process waiting for publication. And we also have a number that are uh, ongoing in various stages of, of the study itself. So um, there's, there's no one in, in, in our space that is doing as much research on the finished uh, products as, as we are. It's just, it's, it, there's every, the, the, the way that the, the integrative medicine market works is that companies will grab a, an ingredient with a research study. And they'll, so they'll grab five ingredients, each with one research study. They'll write an article about those five ingredients. They'll cite the individual studies for the individual ingredient. And they'll say this formulation does that, but that's not science. And, and, you know, maybe you could say that if you were just mixing a vitamin or you were mixing uh, a botanical or something like that, maybe you could say that in my mind, you can't because we don't know how things interact, but right. with those things more so you could probably say that you may be getting these uh, benefits that stack on top of each other. But when it comes to bacteria, I mean, 
how do you know one bacteria doesn't kill the other or one bacteria doesn't make one function differently than it would otherwise function? So, right. so from our perspective, it was you had to have a research with the finished product or you really you were you were doing a disservice to your to your doctors and to your and to the consumers. Yeah, absolutely. That's something that I found with the supplement industry, being that it's relatively unregulated. It, it's, um, it's kind of a coin toss what you're getting unless you have, like you said, those specific clinical trials to back it up. You know, and, and it's funny, like, and, and I, I, I appreciate the word you use, but let's be impeccable with our words because you can't just make stuff anymore and lie about what's on the label. That's not where the deception happens. It used to be that way. Mm -hmm. When I was your age, that was what was happening is that people were saying, like they would buy, they would need five kilos of an ingredient. They would buy one kilo of the most expensive part of that ingredient. And then they'd buy four kilos of the cheapest. And they would show everybody the C of A from the expensive ingredient and say, oh, look how great my product is. And they're cheating on the back end. You, we're, the supplement industry is regulated to the point where you can't do that. That's, right. that's illegal. You can't do it. You get caught with that. They shut you down. So, so that's been buttoned up. Where the, where the cheating is going on now is in the marketing. It's in the messaging and, and what, they're, what they're communicating in the messaging by saying, you know, we, this is a researched product when it's actually a group of researched ingredients and not a research product at all. Got it. Got it. Now that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Now tell me about, I was looking through your website. You have three fundamental aspects of gut health that you talk about. Can you walk me through those? Well, so, so basically, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's easy for me to sit from here and have a conversation from here. It's a little bit more interesting to tell you from where I've come from, right? So when we started Microbiome Labs, we were a one product company. Uh, we had the first uh, multi-spore uh, formulation, probiotic formulation. So, so when I, when we were going through this idea of probiotics and, and looking at and an understanding of the microbiome, the idea that we were going to eat bacteria and these bacteria were going to go live in our digestive tract, colonize and live happily ever after. This was accepted fact in the industry. But when you would go and say, all right, I need to look at the research that supports this you would see research that showed symptom changes or uh, even metabolic changes, whatever the research, whatever they were looking at, you'd read the research, you'd be like, and you're like, well, where does it say that the bacteria went and lived and colonized? And where's that story coming from, right? So it's like the, the, the writer gets this article that says, here's what this bacteria does. And they make up a narrative as to why that works. And so that just was unacceptable for us. So one, we needed to understand what are these bugs? What are they doing? And what we saw is, you know, lactobacillus bifidobacteria-based probiotics, some of them are very well supported by, by science. But if you look at them, it's used one strain for one symptom, and that's how all the research is done. And so, so to take that one strain for the one symptom and this strain for that symptom and put them together and say you treat both those symptoms, Right. Uh, that's not science. You, you, you can't do that. So we had as, as clinicians, as scientists, we already had those questions coming to the table. So then we get this new uh, spore-based technology. 
Now, spore-based probiotic, I had seen small amounts of them here and there in the industry. I, they were, you know, we're talking eight, nine years ago. So I had heard of them. I'd seen a little bit of them. They weren't readily available. Um, and so what we were being explained was that, you know, the reason you don't see them everywhere is because they're very unstable. But our group found a way to stabilize the spores and, and found a way to use multi-spores in one formulation that uh, were stable and we were delivering them 100% of the time. So if you, if you go on a shelf right now, you go into Whole Foods, you go anywhere, grab, grab a probiotic off the shelf. I can almost guarantee you that you will see pill to pill variations in the concentrations of the bacteria that are there. Forget about lot to lot variations. That's, I mean, without even saying, but we, in the same bottle, when you've got pill to pill variations, it's like, can you imagine going and getting a bottle of Advil and, and thinking I'm taking each time I'm taking this pill, I'm getting 200 milligrams of Advil, right? Well, what if yeah. you were getting five one time and 500 the next and none the next time and 120 the next time? You know, it, it, it doesn't work that way. But right. in, when you're selling bacteria, there's, you know, they, they kind of, they test it at the time of manufacture and they give you a, a, an expiration date. And do you actually meet the claim at label date? Well, we'll see. Some people do, some people don't. Some people put a bunch of overage in so that they do finally make it to expiration. It's just a scam. Everybody's trying to find a way. Instead of doing the science and doing what you're supposed to do, everybody's trying to find a workaround to make it so that they can sell whatever it is they have to sell. So for us, it was, one, is, is the product stable? Is it pharmaceutical dosing? I, you know, what I'm saying is it's consistent dosing, that it, there's no variation from pill to pill or lot to lot. You know, could we get that kind of measured uh, specificity? And then from there, could we study it and could we see what it does? And so for us, we, we, we had a strong interest in metabolic endotoxemia, leaky gut right. is what most consumers would call it. You know, because what we were seeing is we were seeing research study after research study that was showing that this metabolic endotoxemia, this spilling of bacteria and bacterial waste products into the bloodstream after we eat, that this is strongly associated with disease. And so from diabetes, uh, the, the, the one thing that shoots the body from high blood sugar to diabetes is an excessive amount of endotoxins from your gut and your bloodstream and how your bloodstream responds to that low-grade poisoning that, that it's experiencing on a daily basis three times a day, you know? So, right. so people are having these low-grade inflammations due to this leaky gut, and it's at the root of every autoimmune disease that we know of, uh, every digestive disorder that we know of. It's the driving marker from diabetes to, uh, or from uh, high blood sugar to di diabetes. It's even associated with, with cancer. And so, so it seems like in the process of living, we need to eat, but the process of eating, if we don't do it correctly, will kill us. And so it's a slow death um, for some of us. Others, it's rather quicker. You know, the, that, that, in, that metabolic endotoxemia becomes a lifeline, lifetime of food allergies and, and inflammation and, and autoimmune disease and, and dysfunction in some people. And it happens very rapidly. In the rest of it, it's kind of a slow drip. It happens over a long period of time. And whatever our genetics 
wherever our genetics are weak, it eventually manifests itself that way. So we've been able to show that the gut derived toxins are actually what's at the root of the lesions in the Alzheimer brain. So we take a post-mortem Alzheimer brain and we dissect the brain. There's gut derived endotoxins in the brain tissue. And there's an immune reaction that's happening to that gut derived toxin being in the brain tissue. Wow. So we're and all this is, is it's a long-term self-pickling we're doing because we're fermenting ourselves rather than fermenting our food. And so, so it's a, it's a right, fascinating right. process. So we wanted to test, can we stop that? Can we stop the flow of toxins out of the body into the blood, out of the, out of the digestive tract into the bloodstream? And so that was our first study. And that was our, that's our hallmark study. It's our, our metabolic endotoxemia study. And we showed that we could reduce uh, the amount of toxins spilling after a, uh, a meal by more than 60%. But, but more importantly, not more importantly, but as important, we showed a reciprocal drop in all the inflammatory cytokines and all of the markers of inflammation that were, you know, it's basically low-grade septicemia. Your body thinks you have bacterial infection with your blood. So it responds, right? There's, that's an emergency situation if your immune system sees infection in your blood. So, but when it has to do that every day at a low grade, it causes problems. So that's what put us on the map. We did the first human um, leaky gut study. And, and what immediately happened overnight is that the phone starts ringing off the hook because every researcher that has a certain particular specialty that they're looking at, they've gotten to a point where they're like, hey, if we can't address this endotoxemia issue, I don't know where we can go further with our research. So overnight, there were people calling us to do studies with Hashimoto's disease, rheumatoid arthritis, you know, just expand diabetes studies, uh, hypoglycemia and prediabetes type studies. So, so it just started blowing up because of that one study. Now, as, as a clinician, you know, I, I come from the clinical background. My partner, Karan, is, is the microbiologist. So we're a good one-two team. He's, he's got the science down and I've got the clinical side down. Right. What was happening is, you know, like they always say um, your most difficult patients are your best teachers, right? So, so the inflammatory bowel patient is, is like, it's like the height of, if you're someone who treats digestive disorders, if you can effectively address inflammatory bowel disease, then you are very good at your job. And so, so and invariably we, with the, the products, we, we run into barriers of improvement with these patients. They get a little bit better and they don't get any better. So we start asking why, or some of them don't respond favorably at all to the, to the, the uh, product or to the, the protocol. And so, so we, we have to think outside the box, right? I always say it's like, we're not in the business of selling books where somebody reads the book and, and the most people get better. It's like, if you're my patient, I gotta get you better. It doesn't matter what I did to the 100,000 people before you. If I failed you, I failed you. So, so yeah, in order to do that, you've gotta be able to ask lots of questions. You've gotta be, you can't be so, so sold on your product that you don't see its limitations, that you don't see that, this isn't good for everybody in every situation. So out of those conversations, we started recognizing that, you know, there's some, some very select precision prebiotics, things that 
selectively feed keystone strains in your microbiome. You know, there's certain bacteria that are strict anaerobes that are high short chain fatty acid producing bacteria. So they produce lots of these butyrate, propionate and acetate, which is anti-inflammatory for your intestines themselves, but it's also very important for your metabolism and for how your body utilizes the fuel that you're eating and, and how it, it manufactures that into energy for your body. And so, so understanding that whole process and, and being able to have the bacteria that live in your gut that make those short chain fatty acids, we saw that as a critical thing. So we could look at uh, an inflammatory bowel patient and see that they were missing all those important short chain fatty acid producing bacteria Right. You can't give those bacteria. Those are anaerobic bacteria. So you can't eat them and have them go down and live in your gut, like they say. So we started looking at the prebiotics. Could we selectively feed them and get them to increase in their numbers just by giving them the right food? You know, so we started approaching the prebiotic with a, with a very precision-like manner because early prebiotics, like early FOS and and uh, some of the Jerusalem artichoke type products that we first came out with in the, in the 90s. But two out of every five people you gave the product to would come in bloated out to here because they were just feeding whatever was there. So right. if you had small intestine bacterial overgrowth and you took some Jerusalem artichoke, boom, next thing you know, you look like you're eight months pregnant. That's because the bad bacteria is loving that Jerusalem artichoke. So the new generation of prebiotics was actually showing us that there were actually certain types of oligosaccharides that very selectively were only feeding certain types of bacteria. So we started doing a bunch of research on that and getting a mix of different prebiotics that would feed the different keystone strains in the microbiome that we needed. And so, and then lastly, there's this repair to the epithelial layer that's necessary. So there's one layer of cells that separates you from your digestive tract, right? So, so it's always like people are like, I ask you, what's the biggest barrier? What's your barrier to your environment? And everybody's like, my skin, my skin's my barrier to my environment. It's like, yeah, your skin, it, it's a barrier, but there's very little interaction there. Right. It's it's a it's more meant to protect you from what's out there than it is to process and bring stuff in And your right. digestive tract. That's where you're most intimate with your environment, because there's one cell layer and you're absorbing and you're excreting through that layer at the same time. And so so it's a very intimate layer there where, where there's uh, the entire immune system is surrounding it and watching it and making sure that there's not a breach in, 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 this, in how things are set up. So, so the, the three parts that you speak of, it's reconditioning the microbiome, getting rid of the pathogens and creating an environment that's conducive for the beneficial strains that you got from your mom for those strains to increase in their numbers. Then we selectively feed specific prebiotics to those strains to get them to be, now that they're there in, in their alpha diversity, now we've got to increase the number of them. We've got to make sure that they've got a strong foothold. So we're going to feed them now that they're there, we're going to feed them an increase in their numbers 
And then we're going to give you the nutrition that you need to repair the damage to that single layer, uh, epithelial layer between your digestive tract and your basolateral circulation. So, so that three-step process, you know, many people only need step one. They, they do step one and their microbiome gets changed and their system reduces the inflammation and everything's fine. And, and that's where we ran the company for a good number of years because we were having such good results just with the one product. But in reality, you know, seeing patients and seeing difficult people, we were like, yeah, we helped them a little bit, but we're, we, we haven't fixed that. And so that desire to help people you're not helping is how we've expanded the product line uh, to, the three, to the three main products that you're talking about. That's Microbiome Labs is known as the company with the total gut restoration program. And that's what you're talking about. It's the spore form probiotic that's reconditioning the gut. It's the prebiotic that's reinforcing the growth of those beneficial bacteria. And it's, it's the, um, the repair formula that's repairing the epithelial uh, layer uh, in the digestive tract. So for us, that's total gut restoration. And those are the three products that we focus the bulk of our research around. Today, I want to interrupt the show to highlight Thrive Market. Now, Thrive Market is on a mission to make healthy living accessible and affordable for as many people as possible. It's a fully online subscription-based grocery store, which provides a free membership to a low-income family, teacher, or veteran in need for every single paid membership. Now, let me tell you why I think Thrive Market is really changing the game in the world of health-promoting foods. First of all, you can shop hand-picked brands from cosmetics to supplements to even frozen wild-caught fish, grass-fed beef, and a bunch of other household products, which are all shipped right to your door. And you might think to yourself, well, organic health food is so expensive. And I totally agree, but when you buy from Thrive Market, you actually save around 25 to 50% off the retail price that you'd find in a physical health food store near you. And the membership is incredibly affordable. It's really just about the price of a cup of coffee per month. And on average, the members make it back in savings after just two orders. Personally, my family has been ordering for Thrive Market for several years and we really can't recommend it enough. So if you wanna make eating healthier, not only more affordable, but convenient and delicious, try Thrive Market risk-free for a month using my link I get a commission, but you also get a discount, so it's a win-win, and you'll get a gift of up to $24 in value when you use the link. And if you don't like it, no worries, you'll get a refund of your membership. The link is in the description. Hope you give them a try. Now, back to the show. Got it. No, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, one question I had, um, you talked about how many supplement companies, when, when probiotics were first at the initial stages, how they assumed that uh, one, there wouldn't be bacterial interactions, and two, that when you consume it, you that doesn't mean that you actually it actually gets to the place where you want it to get to. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So, in, in when you look at the research on a number of different uh, lactobacillus and bifidobacteria-based probiotics, what you'll see is in some cases there have been follow-up research where they've said hey, you know, this live bacteria, it accomplished these things. And, and this is interesting. And this is research. Okay. But then somebody else came along and said, well, what if I kill it first? I'm going to kill the bacteria and then I'm going to supplement it. And they saw better results. So what does that tell you? 
right? It definitely doesn't tell you that the bug went down there and lived happily ever after. We know that didn't happen. You killed it first, right? Right. So what what the research points to is that what most products that are labeled as a probiotic, what they really should be called is a metabolic response modifier. It's typically dead in the bottle. It's I'll say it this way. It's sometimes dead in the bottle, but other times you can open it up and you can put it under a microscope and you see the bacteria moving around. It's alive. But if it's alive, it's in an aerobic situation. It's living in an oxygen rich environment. The gut is devoid of oxygen. So if it doesn't have the ability to live in an oxygen devoid environment, it will die. Plus it has to make the swim through the stomach acid to get there. So in all the gut modeling studies that we've done, in vitro models that we've used, you, you don't see these bacteria surviving through the digestive tract. But even if they could, they get into a, an environment where there's no oxygen, they quickly die. So in my, from my perspective, they're dead bugs, right? But as they're passing through, they're, the dead bacteria, it lyses, there are some outer membrane vesicles that are released into the lumen of the, of the digestive tract. You have the DNA of the dead bacteria that's recognized by the Peyer's patches and the gall, the immune system of your gut. And so what you see is as that dead bacteria is passing through the digestive tract, you see the immune system responding to it. And with certain strains of lactobacillus and bifidobacteria, the response is positive. Right, so it's a it's a positive response. So so it's a response where colds and flus are are, are the incident the frequency of colds and flus is reduced. Uh, the incidence of bloating and gas is reduced. You know, so these are the conversations that probiotic companies are having with you. We were like, who cares about bloating and gas? Right, we want to know like how do we help people be healthy? And if because if we can help people get healthy, it's beyond bloating and gas. Bloating and gas is a symptom. We make the reason why they're getting bloating and gas to go away in the first place. We don't have to treat bloating and gas, right? So, so that's the premise is that we're actually re we're actually changing the environment of the microbiome. The other bacteria, they're dead. They're passing through. They're signaling something to our immune system. It's beneficial. But what we see is the minute you stop taking it, the benefits are gone. Mm -hmm. So it's a very transient uh, response that the immune system only has when it's in the presence of the bacteria, as the bacteria is passing through the digestive tract, there's no long-term change to the microbiome. So for us, it was like, if you're not changing the microbiome, what are you doing? You know, you're treating a symptom. Right. And, you know, from the, my, my clinical background was never to treat a symptom. Uh, it was always find the source of the problem. And, and so that type of digging is, is how we got where we are. And if you look at the probiotic industry, the bulk of the consumption of, of probiotics in the probiotic industry are actually metabolic response modifiers. They're dead bugs that trigger a very specific type of immune reaction when the immune system sees them. Yeah. So how do the probiotic, how do the spore-based probiotics actually survive to the gut? Well, that's what's so interesting. First of all, um, not talking about our environment today, but let's go, let's go back to caveman times, right? So caveman's environment was brimming with spores. They were in every component of the environment, water, 
um, all the animals and, and, and whether it was fish or whether it was land animals that were being consumed, all have spore-based bacteria, bacillus bacteria as part of their microbiome. They're transient bacteria. They spend about two, they spend about 21 to 28 days in your digestive tract. They perform very specific tasks when they're in there. And so, so they're, the, the, our environment, they were everywhere. So every time we ate, we were getting uh, a, a, an inoculation of these spores. Every time we went out and, and into our environment and farmed and, and did the things that, that caveman did or hunted, we were being exposed to spores. Now, modern farming practices, pollution have decimated most of the planet from that having organically having spores. So as a society now, we are devoid of this daily stimulation to our immune system. So there's that. There's that aspect. And, and then if we want to go down that rabbit hole, then that leads us to all the incidents of digestive disorders and autoimmune diseases and yada, 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 right? So, so uh, but when we're looking at the spores themselves now, there were companies that came before us that were selling spores, but they just got the bacteria and started selling it. We looked at it, we're like, well, we, how do you keep it in spore form? Because if it's not in spore form, it's not going to survive the digestive tract either. Right. So how do we deliver it in 100% spore form? So it took our scientists six years to figure that out. So that was not something you could just turn on a switch and, and do it. So a lot of the other spore manufacturers, they're not 100% spore form. They're partial spore form. Uh, some as much as 50%, most of them a lot less than that. So what you have is you have inconsistent dosing and you're not getting the, the benefits. We found that the stimulatory benefits of the immune system, it didn't happen until we were getting a dose of 3 billion spores a day in. So if it was any less than that, we weren't getting that immune system reaction. It seemed like that was a numbers game. So if you're taking a spore and you think you're taking 3 billion, but you lose 50% of it in your stomach acid, then you're never getting the stimulation of your immune system that you think you're getting, right? right? So, so that, and again, how, how would you know that if you didn't do the research to figure it out? How would you do that? If, how would you know when the immune system stimulated if you didn't do the research? And so, so the whole system is upside down, like a lot of things in life these days, but the whole system is upside down. And, and the, the, the tail's wagging, wagging the dog rather than the reverse. We should be allowing science to dictate what we're taking instead of trying to squeeze science around what we're taking, right? So, so it makes a lot more sense to, to, to really actually study it. Now, the spore, what happens is when it gets into a, an environment that's inhospitable, there's not enough food around, maybe it doesn't like the temperature or the pressure or whatever, it dehydrates itself and it forms a really tough outer protein coat. That protein coat is impenetrable. Uh, pressure, uh, enzymes, acids, pH changes, none of that impacts it. The oldest living thing that has ever been recorded by man was a spore. So what happened was, it's a little Jurassic Parkish, but stay with me. 
They found a, a, a fossilized amber in, in either Central or South America. And inside the amber was a, a, a extinct honeybee. It was a very large honeybee that's now extinct. Thank God, I'm glad honeybees aren't that big. But they opened its stomach up and there was some brine in its stomach. And in the brine, there was Bacillus subtilis, one of the bacilli that we use in, in our formulations. They took it out, they plated it, and it grew. It was 250 million years old. Wow. So, so what you have to think about is that th this is beyond man-made, right? This is something with an intelligence that goes beyond what man has introduced. They have been around, they've been on the planet longer than we have. Um, and they, they have, have interacted with their environment before humans, with humans. And so uh, there's, there's a, a component of them where they, they have an, an instinct to survive. So we had to trick them into spore form and then we can deliver them 100%. If even a small percentage of them are not in spore form, then the ones that aren't in spore form start talking to the other ones going, why aren't you, why are you in spore form? You're not supposed to be in spore form. I'm out, I'm out. And it becomes this thing like kind of like turtles when the first turtle hatches, then the rest of them hatch, right? So that's kind of what happens with the spores. And, and, um, and so, so you've got to ensure that you're delivering at 100% or you might be delivering at 0%. So, wow. and we see that a lot when we test some of the foods that have spores in them. Very frequently, the kombuchas we test and things like that, they show zero spores because the spores get in there, they get into the kombucha, they love it. There's sugar in there, there's protein, there's, there's all kinds of carbon and things for them to eat. So they come out of their spore and they're ready to go. So, but that's not the idea. The idea is that we're delivering it in spore form so they can function our digestive tract. And so, so that's kind of how, how we've changed that narrative is we've brought the science back into the spore community and saying, well, no, this is how it has to be. This is the stability that you need to have in order to go to market. So we were behind as far as when we got to market, there were other companies that got there before us, but when we got there, we set a new standard. We're like 100% spore form is, is the new standard. So that's, that's kind of how that's happened. And just to clarify, first of all, what exactly does spore-based mean? And then second of all, where exactly is the probiotic supposed to go? Um, is it the large intestine, the small intestine? Um, yeah. So bacteria have a life cycle. All bacteria have a, a particular life cycle. A certain classification of bacteria have as part of their life cycle, the ability to form a spore. It's a defense mechanism for them to survive in an environment that is otherwise inhospitable. So there's a small number of bacteria that have that. So lactobacillus does not have the ability to form a spore. Bifidobacteria does not have the ability to form a spore. Bacillus does. The bacillus strains of bacteria do have the ability to form, form a spore. So when they're in their spore form, they're inert, they're waiting to get into an environment that has food for them to uh, function. They're biphasic. That means they can live in an oxygen environment or they can live in an oxygen devoid environment. So what the spores do when they go in, they, get, they splash down in the stomach acid, they're fine. They get through, they get into the small intestine. 
And then they go into their active state. It's actually called their vegetative state, which is weird, but that's the active state. So they come out of their shell, if you will, and they start functioning. And what the spores do is they competitively exclude pathogens. So they go into the small intestine, and they start to read the environment. They use quorum sensing, which is how bacteria talk to each other. And they read the environment. And if they see that there's somebody in that environment that's not supposed to be there, they immediately go agitated. They first, they try to fight with it for space or they'll compete with it for food. But if that doesn't work, they'll just turn on it. They'll start, they have the ability to produce upwards of 25 different antibiotics to kill off particular kinds of bacteria that are in areas where they're not supposed to be. So as they go, they work their way down from the small intestine, then they go into the large intestine and they do the same thing. And they're now, now they're really performing their function. So it's not that they're not doing it in the small intestine, it's just that it's a smaller surface area. Uh, it's a little bit more of a rapid movement through the small intestine than it is in the large intestine. So they spend more of their life cycle in the large intestine overall, mm -hmm. and they spend more time and more activity uh, producing. They produce the full uh, B complex in its methylated form, produces vitamin K2, produces coenzyme Q10, so produce all these nutrients, but here's the thing, here's a catch, right? So some people will go, oh, I don't need to take those, that nutrition because my probiotics are in it. Wrong. That's food for the microbiome. The stuff that it's producing is all being gobbled up by the microbiome. None of the K2 that it's being produced makes it into your bones. It's all being devoured by the bacteria and by the, by, by the, the, the uh, environment of the microbiome. It's devouring all those B vitamins. None of them are being utilized by your body. Right. So it's a little bit of a misnomer because because they are producing, but you're really not getting those systemic benefits that, again, that that's being purported by other companies that, that oh, and, and my probiotic makes vitamin B6. So you need B6 for blah, blah, blah. B6 is never making it into your body. The microbiome mm -hmm. itself is devouring that B6. It's utilizing that for its own energy. Got it. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So so the spores actually work their way through the whole time competitively excluding, getting rid of bad infection, making waste products that are beneficial for the microbiome and for the digestive tract itself. And then somewhere 21, 28 days, they resporulate again as it comes out towards, towards the exit. And in anticipation of leaving the microbiome, it resporulates so that it can get back into the environment and then use the environment as a vector to move to the next host, whether it's an insect, a mammal, a fish, a whale or whatever. So every digestive tract we've looked at, we see bacill we see receptors for bacillus bacteria. Okay. I don't know if you've got a receptor for lactobacillus rhamnosus. I don't know that. I can't take your blood. I can't take a stool sample. I can't look in your eyes, muscle test you. There's no way for me to know what make what bacteria truly make up your microbiome and 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 what quantities and qualities right we're doing some stool testing that's opening more information about that but we're still learning right right and and to say that you have receptors that's all that's a whole nother leap to say that there's receptors in your digestive tract for these bacteria so every animal every insect everything we've looked at has receptors for these bacillus strains so it shows that we as humans and as creatures living on this planet, we've had to co-evolve with these bacillus bacteria. Mm -hmm. And now what we're doing, now we have to supplement them medicinally because they're no longer 
readily available in our environment. So the, there is not any one area where they're active in the digestive tract. They work their way and do the same function all the way through. They're just dealing with different pathogens in different part of the digestive tract based on where those pathogens live. Got it. So there are bacillus receptors. Does that mean that basically these bacteria kind of talk to each other and influence each other in the composition of your gut microbiome? Most definitely. Most definitely. And, and the thing is, it's interesting because, you know, when we talk about talking, right, you and I are talking, but with bacteria, um, the waste is talking. There's cell signaling going on from the molecules that they're producing. So there's things that bacillus is making that are causing uh, bifidobacterium longum and acromensia mucinophilia to increase in their numbers, right? right. That's, what's that's what's crazy to me is that without direct communication to those bacteria, you're increasing their numbers by secondary communication, by cell signaling from waste products that are being produced as the spore passes through the digestive tract. So it's really yeah, interesting it, science. Yeah. And, and it shows that not only is the spore able to directly communicate uh, with our immune system, but it's able to do secondary communication to the other bacteria in the microbiome, uh, other pathogens to let the pathogens know, hey, I'm here. Do I really need to fight with you? Or would you rather just turn around and run out the exit before I have to fight with you? Right? We see that a lot of times where you don't want patients to have die-off. Right, You'd rather the, the infection just leave because die-off is going to be unpleasant. Right, So, so that's one of the other benefits of, of, of the spores is sometimes just their presence makes certain types of yeast and things like that just say, you know what, I'm not ready for a fight. I'll just leave. And, and you get an expelling of, of, of yeast versus the die off of it in your digestive tract and then the brain fog and the fatigue and everything that goes with that die off. So, so it's, it's, it's such, it's like you finally put the conductor in front of the symphony. You had this beautiful symphony orchestra, but everybody's playing their instruments out of tune and not together. And you bring the spores in and it's the conductor. It brings everybody in, in tune and gets everybody functioning like they're supposed to. Got it. So these, you have uh, five strains in your mm -hmm. megaspore probiotic. And these basically, they don't only increase the number of these five, but they increase the number of other important populations. That's the key because, you know, and that goes back to that story we, we touched on a little bit earlier, the I mine's better than yours because it's got more, you know, right. uh, a full, full dose of spores uh, in megaspores is 5 billion. 4 billion advertised, but we put 1 billion of overage in there. So 5 billion is, is a relatively low CFU, right? But you're not trying to send in the population. You're sending in the police to manage the population, right? And that's, that's the key. And that's what's truly supported by science is you can't put trillions of bacteria back in your microbiome, but you couldn't, can't put something in there that's going to control the situation and control the growth of the different bacteria, get rid of the bad guys that are crowding out the good guys, and then leave behind the space for the good guys to fill that back up. And so, so it's, it's, it's an interesting way of looking at it. We talk about, you know, what's the best way to, to, to tend to your garden, 
Should you just walk out every day and take a handful of seeds and throw it in your garden? Or should you hire a gardener who tills the soil and pulls the weeds and, and, and gives the plants in the, in the environment an opportunity to dictate who they think should be there? What, what, what do they think should take the place of this beautiful, pristine soil that's been created? You know, let's let the, let's let the forest decide what's supposed to be there, not the humans, right? And yeah. so, so that, that's the basic premise. So through the production of waste products like short-chain fatty acids, you know, a yeast loves an alkaline environment. It won't show up until it's a certain alkaline environment. And then it tries to find ways to kill the things that are making acids because it wants to keep the environment alkaline, right? So it's weird. Healthy for your body is an alkaline blood. Acidic blood is bad. But in your gut, acidic microbiome is what you want. And an alkaline environment is bad. Right. So you've got yeah. these in a number of different areas. Kidneys come into play with that stuff, too. But, you know, long story. But so point being. You. Uh, what, what we're looking for is the the type of response from the immune system and how the how we're communicating here with the immune system. So that's that's the that's the role the spores play. They. And they boost the immune system by themselves. They're fighting with the, the bad bacteria to get rid of them. They're creating waste products to increase the numbers of the beneficial bacteria that you got from your mom. That's where the initial seeding and only real seeding of your microbiome happened was in utero with your mom, vaginal delivery, hopefully for most people, but then afterwards suckling, breastfeeding, that's where the, that's where the microbiome comes from. At that point, from then on out, the only thing you can really do is recondition it. You can't reseed it anymore. It, at two and a half years of age, boom, you got your adult microbiome. The only thing you can do at that point on is recondition it. There's no more reseeding that's that's possible, right? And, wow. that, and, and the whole industry is built on this reseeding story. Yeah, I mean, I, I was a C-section, so I definitely missed out on that. Um, and I know, a lot of people who were C-section, it's become incredibly common and they're just, yeah, it's, it's a huge detriment now. Like I've seen some of the research way later in life, you can have um, consequences. Well, that's what happens when you make birth a convenience and, and not let it do its thing, right? Whether it's the mother that's screaming for convenience, whether it's the obstetrician that would rather be out on the golf course or would rather schedule your your birth, um, you know, that that's where a lot of the increase in numbers comes from. You know, I'm, I'm not gonna say anything. I mean, it's possible your the cord was around your neck and it was an absolute emergency situation for C-section. Right. I like to believe that the majority of them are like that, you know, and, and I'm hoping that the narrative is changing and less and less convenience is, is, is what's happening. Um, but we know it, we know it happens, you know, I mean, we, we, we know that, that, that it's, it's been part of our past. And so, so can we recondition the microbiome of a C-section baby? You know, in our studies, the bacteria that, that live in a C-section baby's digestive tract represent more of the bacteria that live on your hands, because that's, was their first contact was the doctor's hands, the nurse's hands. Right. It was more of that. So how weird right. is that? You're supposed to have your mom's microbiome in your gut. Instead, you have your doctor's hand bacteria in your gut. 
So, I, and we wonder how we have autoimmune problems and digestive disorders. And it's because the wrong bacteria are in the wrong place. Oh man. So you can't ever, you can't ever regain the microbiome that you would have gotten if you were not C-section. So the, we can't completely say that. So okay. this is how you want to look at it. There's a signature, a signature that is unique to you. It's as unique to you as a fingerprint. Now that, and if we look at that as one bacteria of all the different bacteria, that's your fingerprint. What's different and what's influenced by your environment are the number of each of those bacteria, right? So can we take your fingerprint and can we feed it so that it gets back to where it would have been naturally had you had the vaginal delivery, right? So what we're looking at with the C-section baby is not that the only bacteria in its microbiome were the bacteria from the hands of the doctor. What we're seeing is that the prevalence or the highest concentrations of the bacteria are those environmental bacteria and not the, the uh, bacteria from mom, right? So, but the bacteria from mom are still there. They're just at a very low concentration. In some cases, an insignificant concentration. So it's not so, all or nothing. So it's not all or nothing. So it's, can we go in there and, and start feeding, slowly feeding these bacteria and getting them back, changing the environment. And we're finding that we can do that. We're finding that we can reverse the changes of the C-section, the challenges that come from the C-section. Um, and the challenges that come from other, there's other times where, you know, you've got a two-year-old who's been on IV antibiotics for some other condition. I mean, there's lots of different ways you can destroy your microbiome. And so whenever we talk to all of those scenarios, whether it's the, the vaginal delivery or whether it's uh, long-term antibiotics or, or some kind of other stress or something like that that destroys the microbiome, can we bring it back? Research shows that if we give it the right food, we treat it the right way, um, we, can, we can restore it back to some semblance of what it would have been had it lived its healthy way. So it's not a, it's not a, a doomsday uh, situation at all. It's, it, there's opportunity no matter where, if you're breathing, got a pulse, there's an opportunity to, to heal your microbiome. It's just a question of how far down are you? You know, if you've had ulcerative colitis for 25 years and it's, it's now moved into to a, a you know, form of rheumatoid and the, the problems are now in the joints and the systemic inflammation is through the roof, is there, is there a chance? Yeah, there's a chance. We can improve the quality of life. Can we reverse all that's been done? Not likely, not likely at all. Right. Uh, but but can we improve things? You know, um, our research and and our clinical experience shows that we can improve the quality of people's lives wherever they are in that spectrum. You know, but there's a vast majority of people that are in the very early stages of dysfunction that need very little impact, very very little change to their life to have a massive shift in their health. And, and that's what I would like to keep the conversation more in those areas because that's where we can have the hugest benefits. I, I'm empathetic 
And in my practice, I always seem to attract the very difficult patients. And, and, and I believe our products are the best thing that those types of patients have to offer. But I think you have to think about things one step at a time, right? You don't go from a wheelchair to running, right? If you went from a wheelchair to a walker, that's good progress. Went from a walker to a cane, that's great progress, right? But I think if you think about things in stages, you're okay. So if you're, if you have patients that are, if you yourself, if your health has been challenged for a long period of time or the course of your lifetime, there's still a light, you know, there's still opportunity. Can we improve? Can we stop the, the worsening? Can we improve things to a certain point and then, and then have an, a new low that we can build on from there? Yeah, there's opportunity, but where we have the most impact is in these early stages. People are just like, yeah, you know, oh, you mean the daily headache that I get? Like, what do you mean daily headache? Like that's normal, you know? Or yeah, I get bloated every time I eat. Isn't that normal? Like, no, that's not normal. See, those kind of people, you can have very fast change that's life-changing for them. But they didn't even realize that they could function without having bloating after every time they eat, right? Or, or they didn't recognize that, yeah, my mom had Hashimoto's, my sister had Hashimoto's, Looks like I'm on track to get Hashimoto's, but if I start taking this probiotic, maybe I can stop myself from having Hashimoto's, right? That Those right. are the places where change is, is real and impactful and, and where we can, and, and where the larger percentage of people are. I mean, the, it's, a, it's a small group of people that are, you know, really suffering and out on the fringe and, and been in, in problems for a long time, I'm not minimizing that at all. And I want those people to know that there are opportunities out there for them to, be healthier, but the big impact is on these early stage where people are just living with certain things or or waiting for, uh, you know what? My doc says I don't have diabetes yet. Told me to come back in six months. Well, you're not gonna do anything? I'm just right. gonna keep eating and you're just gonna keep shoving food in the pie hole and, and not doing anything different, right? So these is what this this is a place where we can have massive impact, massive impact that reduces cost, improves quality of life. And so that's, that's where, as, as a company, Microbiome Labs, that's where we're trying to make the biggest differences is in, in that area. I think that's spot on. I think almost every guest, no, every guest I've had has talked about that. And, and there's definitely been a dramatic shift in healthcare. Um, and there continues to be, which is more prevention focused rather than just treating it when it's already late stage. And there's, like you said, not that much that you can do. You might still see a benefit, but it's if you were to treat it early and get it early, you could just have a way more pronounced benefit. Exactly. Um, before we run out of time, I want to uh, lightly touch on uh, COVID-19 and the gut microbiome. This is something that I talked a little bit about um, with Dr. Marvin Singh. Um, and so it's, it's become clear now after some of the data have come out that uh, severe COVID-19 is characterized by a cytokine storm. And a lot of research also shows that an unhealthy gut microbiome can lead to the overproduction of these cytokines. And now there are even a few studies that mention a gut lung axis. Um, so what is your take on that? So the, my take is very simple. Um, I, I don't believe that healthy people die of COVID. And I know that there, every day I see a story about somebody, I, I, I get it, okay? But what I think a lot of 
people don't understand is that you can live with a low grade inflammation and you can be completely asymptomatic and you can go into the gym and you can be the strongest guy in the gym, but you can be in a state of inflammation. And, you know, pre COVID where we saw that we we're like, what happened to him? Well, I don't know. He just had a checkup at his, at his cardiologist and they said he was fine. He was walking out to his car, he had a massive heart attack and he died. You know, that was a lifetime of inflammation that came to a, 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 a pinnacle at that point and they had a heart attack. Right. That was not something that happened in that instance that caused him to have a heart attack. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, so the point is when you get sick, regardless of how you get sick, you're, you're, you have an immune reaction to that. Okay. What's happening with COVID is that the people that are having challenges are people that have higher than normal underlying inflammation. Maybe they know about it, maybe they don't. But that underlying inflammation, that cytokine-based inflammation, when, the, when COVID hits and it starts to attack and starts to go towards the organs, it starts to, it starts to have an impact systemically on the different organs, the underlying cytokine inflammation becomes the gasoline to the fire that is that is the infection right and then you get organ failure you get organ shutdown right and so so the point is is that I, and 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 i mean no disrespect to anybody that has lost a loved one or somebody that they perceive to be healthy and it's just a question of how do you define health did they have a diagnosis if you're saying they weren't diagnosed and that makes them healthy, that's not, we don't have the same definition of healthy then, right? Yeah. My definition of healthy means if your C-reactive proteins through the roof, if your homocysteine's through the roof, there's all these markers of inflammation. If, there, if your cytokines, if your uh, uh, tumor necrosis factor alpha and all these other cytokines are elevated and then you get sick, you're going to have a difficult time with the infection. You're going to be sick and you have a higher likelihood that you're going to die. If you are somebody that does not have any cytokines inflammation when you get the infection, then you're going to have an easier time with the infection and you are not going to die. Now the problem is we don't walk around measuring our cytokines. We don't, right. we don't do that. And the thing is, is that I could have zero cytokines when I left my house this morning but something could have happened, stress or something I ate or whatever, and boom, I'm, I'm at a mild to moderate level of cytokines at two o'clock in the afternoon. And right. so, and by the time I get home again, it could be back to zero. And so, so it's, it's, it's not a great tool to monitor yourself to say, oh, well, my cytokines are zero today, so I'll go out, right? Um, it, so it's, it's, it can't be used in the ways that humans like to think about things, right? But that's the underlying thing that's driving the unfortunate, healthy 35-year-old firefighter who died or the 13-year-old who was, you know, everything was fine and he was healthy as, as anything. Well, I, I, I can't buy it. I don't see that in the research. You may yeah. have a different definition of healthy than I do. That's fine. That, that we'll agree to that. 
But my definition of healthy, your definition of healthy are different. And those people were not healthy. And they had a, a level of inflammation that was uncontrollable. How do you control that inflammation? You control the inflammation that's associated with digestion. You control that leaky gut. How do you do that? Spore-based probiotics. That's the only thing that's been proven to date in humans to reduce the endotoxic load after you eat. Are there other things out there? I do believe there are other things out there that will help or, or improve things. Have they been studied in humans yet? No, they haven't. Have the pharma companies spent billions trying to find something to reduce this? Yes, they have. Have they succeeded? No, they haven't. So it's a natural thing that's normally in our environment, but because we beat the crap out of our environment, it's no longer there. And so now we're not getting it in our daily diet. We're not getting it in our food. And so we're running a deficit. So now we need to start taking it as a supplement instead. And, and we need to start restoring balance to our digestive immune response and our systemic immune response. Yeah, you know, I really appreciate that you, that you said that because I and most of the people that I've interviewed on the podcast agree also, which is that healthy people really should not struggle very much with this. Um, and somehow that's become very controversial. Um, but I totally agree with you. I was an athlete for around 10 years. And uh, the common consensus is the fitter you are, the healthier you are. And that often is not the case. When you get to a high level of fitness, and then a news article picks that up and sees, oh, this guy had a six pack and he got hospitalized, right? That doesn't mean he was healthy. Right. Well, you here's a great thing, right? They, they have something called runner's gut. If you ever work with people who run marathons or beyond, I mean, I worked with a guy who ran a, a, a race from, from California to Connecticut, some crazy race. And, uh, and so you get runner's gut. What happens is your body opens up, the, 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 the permeable membrane just opens up and starts spilling all the poisons into your bloodstream because you've been running for 15 hours. You know, it thinks right. you're dying, you know, so, yeah. so it's responding that way. And so high level competition, you push your body to, to a point. And what happens when you start to see people tapering, you start to see them, their, their, their output is going down. A lot, many times that's because of their microbiome. That's because they started to spill more poisons. They're starting to show more inflammation than they were otherwise doing. They got to their peak and now they're crashing. And so so sports is, is great. Fitness is an awesome thing. And it's a very important part of health. Problem is, uh, if you overdo it, or if you're trying to compete at the highest level, uh, you can overdo it. And then that leaky gut becomes part of your daily routine. And that inflammation starts to reduce your, your, your athletic out output performance. So, so it's, it's, it's a vicious circle and managing it is part of it. So using Certain types, certain types of spore-based probiotics to manage the athlete and, and keep them from, from losing performance is the same type of thing that we would give a, an 80-year-old who just had hip replacement who's got a C. diff infection because it's the same thing. It's the spilling of poisons into the bloodstream that's causing their inflammation. And if we can reduce it, we can improve whatever they need improved, whether it's quality of life or whether it's athletic performance and everything in between. Yeah, absolutely. As I've come to learn more and more about the microbiome, I just see that it's, it is at the centerpiece. I think it was Hippocrates that said that all disease begins in the gut. And I think he was spot on with that. And so long ago and so true. It will never yeah. change. Yeah. How are we doing on time, by the way? 
Um, you know what? Hey, if you got more questions, I'm good. If uh, if not, I'm good too. It's uh, your call. It's your show. Perfect. Okay. So I have, I do have one more question before we get into uh, the rapid fire rounds that I ask everyone other than probiotics. Um, what are some ways to support a gut health or leaky gut? So, I mean, it comes down to what the fuel, the fuel you're putting in the, in the machine, right? So I could be taking the best probiotics. I could be taking the best program to fix my leaky gut. But if I'm eating refined carbohydrates and sugars, then it's of no use. So the number one thing that you have to do to manage the leaky gut is control what you're putting in. Uh, I like to think that a lot of people in your audience know that already, but um, it's always good to reinforce that idea. Uh, I don't believe it's my own belief. And uh, I, I don't believe that we are a single fuel organism. So I don't believe we function well on just protein. I don't believe we function just well on just fat. I do believe that we need our digestive tract is a long winding digestive tract, very similar to animals that eat lots of plants. And so, but I also know that there's lots of things that we can't process from plants that are needed that, are, that we find in, in meats. So point being, my, what I tell people is I like people to eat a plant-heavy paleo diet. That means I, I want them following the principles of paleo. I want them eating proteins and I want them balancing their fats, but I want them eating 70 to 80% plants and the rest being, I don't want somebody ordering a 64 ounce steak and a piece of broccoli and saying, I'm following Tom's recommendations, right? right. So, so plant-heavy paleo to me is the most important. That's eating in an anti-inflammatory way. You're putting foods in your system that are balancing things out, but not promoting inflammation. But all you eat is bacon. The first few bites of bacon are going to be good for you. But then after that, you're just promoting inflammation. You're just triggering an inflammatory cascade in your body. I believe everything we talk about, whether it's controlling a symptom, where it's anti-aging, whatever it is we're talking about, starts and ends with inflammation. So we eat in a way that is anti-inflammatory. We eat fruit alone and on an empty stomach. We don't mix it in our meals. We don't eat other foods with it. Um, we, we're smart about how we combine our foods together. And so if, if you're at a time where you're eating a sweet potato, don't eat protein. Eat your sweet potato with your vegetables. Leave it at that. Um, if you want to eat the protein, if you want to eat a piece of meat or a piece of chicken or something like that, then just eat it with vegetables. Be smart. Don't ask your digestive tract to do 14 different things at the same time. Ask you to do one or two, and then you'll get more out of it. It will perform better for you, right? So what you put in is number one. We talked about probiotics and prebiotics and mucosal repair products for leaky gut. I think that's huge, but I can't minimize the importance of water, rest, sleep, exercise. I can't say that of the things that we've mentioned from food all the way down to exercise and everything I mentioned in between, that one is more important than the other. They're not. And it will, I can't tell. For you, one of them might be more important, but I can't tell. I won't know until we get in and, and do them all. And then you start to pull one or two of them out and you start to regress a little bit. We're like, okay, that was it. That's a really important one for you. But to me, all of those things are critical to health. And, and, and non-negotiable. You, you really, you can't have an expectation of health without fulfilling and following those, those rules. It's saying, I'm going to be focused on each of these different 
components of my health and I'm going to do that. I'm going to go to bed. I'm going to try to get two to three hours of sleep before midnight a couple of times a week, right? I'm going to, these are, these are important aspects of health and healing, right? This is what we're talking about. Are you healthy? I'm healthy, right? I'm healthy. Do, do I think my body needs to heal? Oh yeah. Every day my body needs to heal, right? So I'm talking about maintaining my health, but I'm doing it by making sure that I'm maximizing my daily healing. And how I do that is I control inflammation and I do my basics, my fodder, my water, food, rest, exercise, expression of my emotions. I'm smart about how I eat and I support myself with the supplements that I know are gonna correct that leaky gut. To me, that's the only solution. Are you familiar with the carnivore diet or the animal-based diet? Of course. I mean, I, I've been a practicing uh, functional medicine doctor for 25 years. I've done, I've tried every diet that there is. And I do think certain diets are effective in certain situations. Um, vegetarianism is a, a, a good example. You know, there's, there's some good data on certain conditions where people following a vegetarian diet. But invariably, they, over time, you see the long-term stress associated with the vegetarian diet, right? So that says to me, it's incomplete, right? right? You're, 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 you're following an incomplete diet. So a carnivore diet, things like that, again, it's, it's incomplete. And uh, it may be correct to use therapeutically for X number of weeks or even X number of months, but it's not a long-term solution right. in my humble opinion. Yeah, I ask because exactly, there's so much controversy. There's so many, many contradictory claims. Like you see one doctor saying that this is the one for everything, but I love that you said that. Um, and you mentioned balance, which I think as I've come to interview several, uh, like a dozen people now, that's what seems to really be one of the most true things is that, is that there is a balance. Exactly. That's exactly, my practice was called Pure Balance. That was the name of my, my functional medicine practice. And that was what it was about. And it was a detox from the minute we came up with that change because it was putting it in people's face and it was causing us to have to look at it too. So it was a really interesting process, but I, I couldn't agree more with you. Okay, so before we get into the rapid fire rounds, where can people find out more about you and the work you do? So microbiomelabs.com is our website. That's where you get educated. Um, we've got uh, the product listings and things like that. you get educated on your products. We, we choose to sell our products direct to physicians. So on the website, you can find a physician in your area that utilizes the product. There are some areas online where you can access the product and, and you can go to some doctors that have online practices and you can work with them. Uh, we are on full script. Um, so if your doctor uses, utilizes full script, we're, we're on there. So those are some of the places, but I think for most people that want the science and want to kind of understand our products, that'd be our website. That's microbiomelabs.com. Perfect. I'll include the links to that in the show notes and let's get into the rapid fire rounds real quick. So number one, what is the most important habit you personally do every day to support your health? I take spores with my meals. What is the most important lesson you've learned recently, whether it be from a research study, a book, or a life lesson? Um, to listen, um, to, to, to not react and to listen. Um, as as a, a, a physician, I'm taught to react. 
there's this in reality, this in reality. And then I have kids, then as a dad, I have kids. And so the kids do this and I react, right? And it's like, I, well, that didn't, that wasn't working, right? So I had to find a new way to do things. And so in, in the, in the, you know, my idea now is, you know, I, I used to treat 20 people a day. Now, someday I'm, I'm going to walk in and there's going to be a, a million people that are going to take my products in a day. Right. And so that's, that's, to me, that's this bigger than life way of, of me helping more people in the time I spend on this planet. Right. So, so for me, how can I, how can, how can I get more people to uh, listen to the sciences and, and, and I find the way that I get more people to listen is by me listening, by me hearing their pain points, by me addressing the things that are of concern to them and helping them understand how I can or how my products can help with that. So that's been a huge shift for me of late. It's probably the third or fourth time in my life where it's been pushed in my face that I need to listen and not react, but it's been uh, very effective of late in helping us uh, grow the company. And finally, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Well, I knew a lot more then than I do now. So that's what's weird about it. 20-year-old um, me knew everything when he really knew nothing. And so I think that what I would tell 20-year-old me is pump the brakes. Listen, there's a lot you don't know. Um, you'll, you'll go a lot further and a lot faster in life if you listen versus plowing through life. And so I, I didn't plow through my whole life, but in my twenties and my 20 year old self, that's, that was my attitude that I kind of knew what I was and knew what I was going to do. And I really didn't. And uh, it was a learning experience. And I, I think it's a, uh, it's the need, especially for the male, it's the need for that ego to be squished down and put to where it needs to be, not where you think it's supposed to be. Um, and so getting the ego out of living, uh, was the most mature thing. And, and it allows me to sit here right now and say, I'm just a student of life. And if you've got something else to, if you've got something that you want to teach me, I'm all ears. And, uh, and if it's something that's related to what I know stuff about, then I, Hey, I, I'm, I'm going to listen to what you have to say. Um, and, and hopefully we'll both be smarter when the conversation's over. Yeah, I love that. That's an an answer that I've gotten in different ways, but I've gotten the same type of message. Yeah, it's the yeah. truth. All right, Dr. Bain, I really appreciate your time. This was incredibly informative. I'm really excited to publish this. Um, thank you again. Thank you. I appreciate the time. I appreciate the opportunity. And uh, if there's anything we can do for you in the future, just let us know. We're happy to help. If you like this episode and if you've liked some of my other episodes with other guests, please take the time to review this podcast on iTunes. That would be incredibly helpful to me and getting this message out to way more people.